Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Revelation. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 7. Our focus tonight will be on verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, our Lord's letter to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 1, beginning at verse 9, let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now follows the words of our text. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May the Lord bless our reading and hearing of his word this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know whether it's in your family as it is in mine, but 
invariably I go to the mailbox when I hear the noise of the the mailman passing by on the street and I come back to the house and my wife says anything important and the usual response is no nothing just some junk mail someone advertising a product someone hoping to steal some of my money or whatever very little we don't communicate much by letter these days we communicate mostly with these silly emails and even worse tweets and little text messages I once had to tell my daughter the least you could do is capitalize the first letter of the sentence and use some commas and pay attention to the spelling and what about a salutation not to mention a benediction uh, sincerely at the end well why do I get on to this I get on to this because I have news for you I have a letter of which I am quite strictly speaking nothing more than a courier the thing about the male people I hope no one's a mailman or a woman here this evening is you really don't know them that well with the exception of my neighbor down the road who talks to him all the time uh, what matters is what is delivered now the mailman or the angel who are the seven stars that are in the firm grip of the risen ascended Christ they are to be couriers of each of these letters now some commentators think that the angel of the church in Ephesus and so on and the other six churches all seven of them was either a real angel or perhaps it was the principal pastor teacher of the Word of God in that particular place it really doesn't matter what matters is they are bearers of a word not their own and the striking thing about this letter and that's where we're going to begin this evening is who wrote it he's represented to us that's why I read the first great vision of the book of Revelation in chapter 1 as borrowing language from the book of Daniel as the ancient of days his hair as white as wool one who is from everlasting to everlasting the Alpha the first and the Omega the last if you want to proof text for the deity of God the Son become through his exaltation and session at God's right hand the one who has authority over all things you'll find it on every page throughout the book of Revelation this is a letter penned by the risen ascended Christ from whose mouth proceeds a double-edged sword more living and powerful than any two-edged sword Christ himself in all of his majesty takes the trouble and he follows a very careful format in the letter that he writes he first of all identifies himself and commentators will tell you that the way Christ identifies himself in each of these letters has something to do with what he subsequently tells them needs either to be commended or perhaps amended and so we're going to begin by looking at how our Lord identifies himself in this first of seven letters and by the way why seven why not six 
or maybe eight. How many churches do you think there were in Asia Minor at the time of the writing, late first century, of this word of the Lord through John and the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos? Well, I'm sure there were many more, if you've traced out any of the book of Acts or Paul's missionary journeys, there were literally hundreds of churches throughout Asia Minor. Why seven? Well, there are seven actual churches with real problems, with real challenges, churches very much like this congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Damoth, Emmanuel. But they're actual congregations, but seven representing, you might say, the full spectrum of what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like and will find in the period of history in which we now find ourselves. In these last days, the day of salvation between Christ's first coming and His coming again. And so this is a letter ultimately from Christ, not only to Ephesus, but also to us. Now these letters also, after the author is identified, In one or two instances, the Lord has only good things to say about the church to whom he writes. In one instance, he apparently didn't have anything to commend them for, and so doesn't commend them at all. This letter is more typical. It has a word of commendation. That's my second point. And it has a word of what might be called condemnation where they need to make amends and repent. And then, like all of the other letters, carefully crafted, it ends with a promise. To those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says, what Christ says in and by His Spirit, what He holds out to them, those who conquer, who stand firm in their testimony and in their walk. So those four things, the author, the commendation, the complaint or the condemnation, and then lastly, the promise as an encouragement. First of all, the author. We're told, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds. And I'm told, I know, having looked at the text, that that hold there is not a loose, casual, it's a strong and firm resolute grip. The Lord who holds, who grips in his hands, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Congregation, whenever you hear the word of the Lord, not only these letters, this is not a red letter portion of the book of Revelation. You could say the whole of the book, we're told in the first chapter, is write it down, John, and send it to the churches. The whole letter, including the whole of the book of Revelation, including this particular letter. You hear the word of Christ himself, whose voice is like the roaring of mighty rushing waters, an allusion to a reference to God speaking in the prophecy of Ezekiel. 
And now notice what he says about himself. He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, the seven golden lampstands represent all of the churches. It uses Old Testament imagery of the people of God as being a people who bear testimony, who shed light, who come to a world in darkness with the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your light shine. Be a city set upon a hill. Because in the book of Revelation, from the beginning to the end, again and again you'll hear the phrase, the testimony of Jesus. The church is a church hearing the word of God that speaks and testifies and is like a light in the midst shining brightly of the world's darkness. It's very interesting that our Lord says he walks among them. In the opening chapter, he's standing in the midst of them. Here, the image is that of one who knows us, our circumstance, exactly what's going on. Now, you can pull the wool over the eyes of your pastor. You can uh, trip up the elders. You can make a show of things in the presence of a fellow church member, but not so in the presence of Christ, whose eyes examine and search the heart. And isn't it a wonderful thing to think that the Lord Jesus Christ knows the Emmanuel United Reformed Church, even as he knew the church in Ephesus. He knows exactly where you are and what is your circumstance. And it is out of that reality that he speaks. And he doesn't speak like some preachers speak, papering over the cracks in the wall and announcing peace, peace, when there is no peace. He speaks tenderly and lovingly. He seeks the church's well-being invariably, uh, but he doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is, whether they wish to acknowledge it or not. Now, what does he tell the church in Ephesus? What word does he have to speak through his angel, his messenger, as he walks among and sees them for who they are? First of all, a word of Great commendation. That's where he starts. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's a pretty striking commendation as we consider it now in just a moment. He also adds a little bit down the way after he's called them to repentance and registered a complaint regarding this church. He, he says to them, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now you may be asking yourself, what exactly is our Lord referring to here in these words of commendation. You need to know something about Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading city. 
perhaps the greatest city in that province of which it was the capital city. It borders the Aegean Sea to the west. It's a river port town. It was a place, a crossroads. Sometimes people talk about northwest Indiana. The Chicago area is a kind of crossroads. And if you're on I-80-94, you know whereof they're speaking. Truck after truck. It's amazing. Well, this was a city that was renowned for its commerce and its trade was also a city that was known for its loyalty to the emperor. And if, as tradition tells us, the book of Revelation was written by John in the Spirit late in the first century, it's in a period of a growing ascendancy of the pretensions of the Roman emperor, the Caesars, who called themselves what? Kurios, Lord. Theos, God. The landscape of the city of Ephesus was dotted with imperial temples whose primary purpose it was to worship, to adore, to offer sacrifices, to confess that Caesar... The Roman emperor is Lord and God. It was also a place of great, kind of a combination of religion with uh, profiteering. You know the book of Acts chapter 19 when Paul on one of his missionary journeys finds himself in Ephesus and he's preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the merchants, many of whom, one of them a silversmith who made little silver idols of the goddess Diana, Artemis of the Romans, they came to the conclusion that if this gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ preached by this strange fellow by the name of Paul, who calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, if that were to take hold... Why, our business would suffer. Our commerce and trade. And even on the political front, our loyalty to Rome and the Roman emperor would be compromised. And it would not go well for us. And so in the book of Acts 19, you find that there was a great riot. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, they were in the streets shouting, Great is Diana, Artemis! And they were threatening to take Paul's life. Now, why do I mention all of that? It was not an easy thing to be a professor, not a teacher, but one who professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is Lord. In the book of Revelations, He's called, Revelation, he's called Lord of Lords, King of Kings, beside whom there is none other worthy of worship, obedience, and adoration. 
You can well imagine how it was going for the Ephesian church. That's why all of this language is very impressive. I know your industry, your work, you've not grown weary. This is a congregation where the membership would, shoulder to shoulder, give themselves to the work of, and labor of the ministry of the Word of God among them. If you had a little thing in the foyer asking for volunteers for this, that, or the other ministry, they were ready to sign up. The pastor didn't have to cajole anyone to put their name down and give themselves to the work. The term that's translated here, toil, means hard labor. They put their hands to the plow. They were ready to serve and to work. And they patiently endured. They endured patiently bearing up for my name's sake. That is to say, when it pinched their family business, because they were not willing to have that little marker of the beast so as to have commerce in the public marketplace, they endured. They bore it patiently. They were like the the people of God to whom the author of Hebrews writes, when you were dispossessed of your earthly goods, you remained steadfast in your loyalty to Christ, knowing that you had in that new and better country a lasting inheritance, imperishable, of greater value than anything this world could possibly offer you. And one thing stands out in particular, if this were not enough, is that there had arisen, obviously, among them some who called themselves apostles. It's striking that in the book of Acts, not only do we read about the riot that broke out when they feared that this gospel of the kingdom would injure their prosperity and their trade as a city and their idolatries were being exposed. Paul had called, we're told this in Acts chapter 20 from Miletus, the elders of Ephesus to come and preaches what we often call his farewell sermon. He also wrote, by the way, the apostle Paul, a letter to the Ephesians from prison. Note well. And he warned those elders, there will be wolves that will come up from within the body of your church. They might dress themselves up in, and as though they were sheep. They'll claim to be, if not of the twelve apostles, at least associated with and on a par with the apostles, preachers of the gospel. And they didn't want to, and Paul warned them regarding this, and apparently they had heeded in Ephesus that warning because they tested everything. And if the testimony borne by these so-called apostles did not comport with that which was given by Christ's apostles, they rejected it. They were in that sense orthodox. You know, in our day, it's actually become the case that if someone calls you, oh, you're that church, that is orthodox. 
straight in the doctrine and straight in its presentation. Oh, too bad for you. That's not the way Christ speaks to them. He commands them. Well done. Stand fast. Hold firm to the testimony that has been born to who I am and what I have done. Don't give an inch. No quarter. No shaving the rough edges. The full counsel of God. This was a church that took that seriously. And for that, the Lord Jesus Christ commends them. Now, you may be asking, what about that? Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Well, we find out more about the Nicolaitans in a subsequent letter, but they're associated with a form of teaching. Great mystery as to the name Nicolaitan. Does it refer to Nicolaus, who's mentioned as one of the seven, who was appointed as a deacon in Acts 6? Followers, he had gone astray. No one knows. Doesn't matter. What they were, were teachers, probably among the apostles who were pretenders, who were saying, come now, we've got to go along with the commercial practice of the city of Ephesus. We know those are idols, no gods, but we have to go to the temple and engage in the usual rituals of presenting the sacrifices and engaging in the forms of behavior. They went even so far as like Balaam, because you see, I'll use a big word, I'm sorry, there was a Gnostic tendency among them. By the way, there's a neo-Gnosticism in our culture which says the body is unimportant. So what you do with it, what you think of it, how you identify yourself in respect to it, makes no difference. You think, you identify, and you celebrate. You even have a whole month dedicated. You call it Pride Month. And everybody is encouraged to participate. And some people will lose their job if they write something in an email, to the contrary. Well, these Nicolaitans were saying, well, you know, we can, we mustn't be unduly convicted about matters of sexual immorality. After all, the temple worship in those days and the imperial worship in those days included a lot of sexual immorality, much like that which was true of the nation surrounding Israel in the Old Testament period. There's nothing new under the sun. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says in this letter to any church of the Lord Jesus Christ that like Ephesus, living in now a neo-pagan culture, like the one we're entering into and already find ourselves living in, you hold fast. And I commend you when you do. You keep a firm grip on my word and you resist these false teachers who come among you and say God will not regard as unacceptable a little 
accommodation and association and participation in these practices that the culture celebrates. Now, that's the word of commendation. What about the word of complaint or even condemnation? Verse 4, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what is this forsaking of the love you had at first? Commentators are all over the place on this. Some say it's their love for God and His Christ, their devotion to Him. I don't think that's the primary reference because the word of commendation suggests they were pretty loyal, pretty resolute as to their confession and their adherence to Christ's name. Uncompromisingly so. The vast majority of commentators, and I concur, take it firstly to be a reference to their love for each other, which had grown cold. Paul, after all, had said to the church in Ephesus, you need to speak the truth, but speak it always in love and seasoned with grace. Now, I don't think it's really an either-or because the love we show to one another within the fellowship and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, has everything to do with our love for God and for His Christ. These are people precious to Christ. The folk that sit next to me in the pew, He died and shed His precious blood to purchase them. And I tell my students repeatedly, there's an old proverb in the Dutch language, it roughly translated comes to this, the Lord has some very strange children, (laughs) hard to love, let me tell you. Big family with all shapes and sizes, and they rub you the wrong way, and they this and they that, who knows what, and it's very easy to hang out with my little group and never mind the rest of the congregation. What was happening in Ephesus, we know not exactly, but they apparently were valiant for the truth, but not warm-hearted, tender-hearted in their care and concern about each other. And John does say, the same apostle who wrote the book of Revelation in the Spirit in his first letter, how can the love of God abide in someone who knows God's love for him or her and for his people, and they not love their father, their brother, or their near neighbor, the person who's alongside them, a member of the fellowship. And that registers itself in a variety of ways. We pray for each other. We visit each other. We seek to encourage each other. We bear patiently with one another. We don't keep a record of wrongs or nurse our hurts. We don't let envy, pride, or jealousy allow the ugly head of division to manifest itself among us. And apparently something like that was happening. It's pretty serious because 
Christ says, for all that which he commends them for, if they don't repent, he will come and take their lampstand. Their witness will be extinguished as light in their community. That's why one very good commentator on the book of Revelation thinks it may also be not only their love for God, but especially their love for one another, but as well their love for those within their own community who are outside of Christ and need to be brought to Him. And so know the joy that you know and experience the grace of His mercy and forgiveness as you've experienced it. And he references a passage like Matthew 24 where our Lord says, the love of many will grow cold, but this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. And there's only one cure for that, by the Spirit, by God's grace, to be moved to repentance. Now, the striking thing is, I don't know the Emmanuel United Reformed Church the way Christ knows you. I don't know whether this is a word in season or it's exactly the reverse. Weak in doctrine, great in your love and concern for one another. Could well be. I'm an interloping pastor. What do I know? But Christ knows. And he knows better than you. He knows that all of his churches need forever to be reminded love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is harsh, unkind, and unforgiving. You need both. And the Love we have for each other grows out of what we know to be true in the gospel. God so loved us that he gave us his only begotten son. You know, it's interesting that in the scriptures, the relationship between Christ and his church is that between a bridegroom and a bride. And how does it go sometimes with the, that relationship? You need to have the love you had at first rekindled, kept alive. So also in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's this promise, and that quickly, to the one who conquers, Christ never ends without holding out a glorious promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, reminiscent of that tree of life, which if they ate of it, they would live forever, that tree representing life in communion, having access to, being owned of God, and owning Him. When Adam and Eve were barred from access to the Garden of Eden. But the one who overcomes, he will enjoy perfect communion fellowship with the living God, access to the tree of life. If you read Revelation chapter 22, in the new order of things, the new creation, where there is no longer any curse, and everything is perfectly holy, 
consecrated to the Lord and his service and through the service of those who are the Lord's, a perfect bridegroom in communion with his blood-bought, unblemished now bride. They'll enjoy a marriage feast like no marriage feast any one of us in this room has ever celebrated. They will eat and drink and enjoy fellowship with the living God in a, in, a, in a way that's beyond your and my ability to even begin to comprehend it. To those who overcome, who pay attention, who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. May God grant to you and me the ears with which to hear what Christ by the Spirit says to the church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us those ears. Unstop our inclination sinful to have hearts that Resist your word when it speaks truthfully and like a living and active and double-edged sword penetrates to the depths and innermost parts of who we are. May we be a congregation, may we be people who love the truth, who stand upon it and are unashamed of it. But may we also be equally a people who love you, who love those who are yours, and to desire and seek to communicate that gospel to those in our surrounding community and nation, and among all the nations and peoples of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name.